Teach me about the Great Lakes. Teach me about the Great Lakes. Welcome back to Teach Me About the Great Lakes, a belated but still twice monthly podcast in which I, a Great Lakes novice, ask people who are smarter and harder working than I am to teach me all about the Great Lakes. My name is Stuart Carlton and I work with Illinois Indiana Sea Grant and I know a lot about the fact that spring is a ecological process, not just a certain day. Uh, <laughs> In which all of a sudden we declare it's spring, but I don't know a lot about the Great Lakes. I am joined today by Carolyn Foley, Research Coordinator with Illinois Indiana Sea Grant. Carolyn, how are you? No, we need some other way to start this. How are you, stupid? And then you talk about the weather. Carolyn, uh, how are you? <laughs> I'm all right. Thanks, Stuart. Actually, no, I was going to hit you with something else today. So um, a question from, you know, our boss that he always asks, at what point? Do you stop being a Great Lakes novice? Because how many we've done 78 of these episodes now. At what point do you stop being a Great Lakes novice? This is actually a good question. I, this is a frequently asked question. And the answer is it all comes down like many things in my life to my own sheer incompetence. And, and because and this is a, people have, I've alluded to this, but I want you to listen, listener, but listen closely because I'm going to whisper. And the answer is I am so incompetent at producing, teach me about the Great Lakes, a twice monthly podcast in which I, a Great Lakes novice, ask people who are smarter, harder, working, and I teach about the Great Lakes, that I forget to pay attention. <laughs> um, and so I never know what anybody has said ever. So I think it is nice because it becomes like self-sustaining, right? But I, I forget to remember to pay attention because I just want to not screw up the recording because I fear the day when I have to email someone sheepishly and say, thank you so much for giving us your time to appear on Teach Me About the Red Lakes. However, um, however, uh, <laughs> we forgot to record. And so that's what I actually fear. So realistically, Stuart, I was trying to give you an out there because I have, you know, I've lived in the Great Lakes region my entire life and I have paid attention to it for, you know, much of my university and post all of nearly all of my post university career. And I still don't know stuff and the lakes are always changing. So you could just say you, you'll always be a novice in some aspect of it. I was just I trying could. to help you out. I could. That'd be very humble of me. Instead, I'll put it this way. I ain't doing this for free. So really, Great Lakes <laughs> Pro right here. Anyway, we have a little bit of housekeeping before we get to today's guest. First of all, if Teach Me About the Great Lakes Live, this is going to be the year of Teach Me About the Great Lakes Live. We have uh, two on the books, probably a third one coming at least. And so we want to announce those while before it's too late to act. Uh, the first one, we're going to be at the Emerging Contaminants in the Environment Conference, uh, April 13th in Urbana. Uh, that's an Illinois-Indiana Sea Grant joint. So you should Google it. Although maybe if you haven't already been invited, you're not invited. How's that work, Carolyn? I don't even know. Going to the conference? Yeah. Can people just go? Yeah, I'm pretty sure people can. Um, I'm I'm not sure when register clo registration closes, but they have like an online version too. So it's the Emerging Contaminants in the Environment Conference. Um, and then, yeah, we'll be doing a session. It's Urbana, Illinois. Just I don't know how many Urbanas there are in the United or States. Or the other Urbanas. Potentially. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's good. Well, if, if you can't register, listener, and you want to go, send us an email, teachmeaboutthegreatlakes at gmail.com, and we'll, we'll, we'll pull some strings, uh, I think. Sorry, Sarah, if I can't do that. Um, and then the second one is uh, at Iagler, the International Association of Great Lakes Research, on Tuesday, May 9th, probably about 8 o'clock or so, from a noisy pub. That's what we've been told. We only record in bars, and uh, we're going to be in noisy pubs, and these are all true. Uh, and we will have more details on that. Keep your eye. Well, we'll probably announce it on the show. Uh, we don't do a lot of social media these days, but keep your eye on social media and we'll, um, we'll indicate 
where we're going to be. Yeah. But that'll be a lot of fun. Um, this will be the second live one from my Agler. Yeah. And uh, it, it was super fun last time, and it'll be super fun this time. And this year, I Agler is in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. The T dot. T dot O dot. It's a real thing. I know you gave me grief before, but it is a real thing. No, no, I looked it up. It is a real thing. And if you're there, hey, why not also come Monday, May 8th, uh, 3 p.m. at the Hilton there uh, for Ask Dr. Fish Live, too, with Katie O'Reilly and Titus Salhammer, twos, twos, doctors, fishes. So that's good. Okay. And then um, one other thing people have been asking, many people have been asking, what about Great Lakes News? What has happened to Great Lakes News? Well, as you know, maybe Sandra Svoboda has left Great Lakes now. And we are working to, uh, Great Lakes News is coming back. We're just having to figure out a new scheduling system. Uh, so that'll be there. Uh, we anticipate Great Lakes News being back within a few weeks because we uh, love working with Great Lakes now. They're a great partner. And if I don't get Great Lakes News from them, I don't get Great Lakes News at all. Because although I may be a Great Lakes professional... <laughs> <laughs> I can't keep up with everything. So that'll be back. And the other thing is we want some listener feedback. So we're going to talk today about uh, hypoxia, which is somehow related to algal blooms. Uh, we're, we're going to ask our, our guest precisely how I think. But uh, I want to hear your stories. I want to see your pictures. I want to read your stories, I suppose, or see your pictures. So send us an email, teachmeaboutthegreatlakes.com, or no, teachmeaboutthegreatlakes at gmail.com. Uh, I want to see gross algal bloom pictures. I want to hear a gross hypoxia story. Uh, really gross, really hypoxia. That's what we're kind this of. This is really about. just, I don't know. I'm like, I, like, I'm like cringing over here because I've experienced it in real life. And I'm like, are you sure? Are you sure? But anyway. Man, I lived in Florida during like really bad red tides. I had to sample fish. Uh, I had to sample hundreds of dead red drum dried up on a beach from red tide while asphyxiated. I don't want to hear about your wimpy Great Lakes hypoxia. Hey, we'll okay. Well, with that, let's introduce our guest. All right. You know what? We have a guest who actually knows a lot about hypoxia, but he is a certain type of professional, and that is a researcher. So first... Researcher feature, a feature in which a researcher gonna teach us about the Great Lakes. Our guest today is Dr. Paris Collingsworth, who is a Great Lakes ecosystem specialist with Illinois Indiana Sea Grant, and he's uh, works up at the Great Lakes National Program Office up in Chicago, and is the co-author of a paper called "Widespread Prevalence of Hypoxia and the Classification of Hypoxic Conditions in the Laurentian Great Lakes," which is uh, currently out in the Journal of Great Lakes Research, or as Karen or Karen or Carolyn calls it, Jiggler. Paris, how are you today? Doing well, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on uh, to the show. It's been a minute. We've been trying to get you on actually to do something different for a few years. We will, we will, uh, we will get you on for a draft at one point, but but not yet. First of all, uh, so hypoxia. Well, I have a lot of questions about hypoxia because I actually don't know a lot about it. I don't even know if red tide is directly related. I, I it actually probably isn't um, now that I think about it. Um, but regardless, uh, for the record, Paris was emphatically shaking his head no. So all right. Well, you see that is, that's why we bring on these smarter and harder, et cetera, et cetera. So anyway, tell us what is start. Let's start big picture. What is hypoxia uh, exactly? Other than not red tide. Sure. So hypoxia is referring to a decrease in oxygen concentrations in in water that's that's basically it uh it's a little bit hard to define precisely uh because um it it sort of represents like a range of different uh dissolves oxygen concentrations um depending on you know sort of what your interest is what your endpoint 
you might define hypoxic conditions as uh, greater or less um, in, in terms of the absolute concentration of oxygen in the water. So for example, uh, there some some species of fish are way less tolerant of hypoxia than others. Um, a thing like a lake trout, um, they might experience physiological stress at a dissolved oxygen level of like seven milligrams per liter. Uh, whereas, you know, a fish like yellow perch, they can do well in uh, dissolved oxygen concentrations down to like two milligrams per liter. Uh, and so it, it sort of varies, but then you have the sort of endpoint, which is anoxia, which is just a zero. There's zero oxygen in the water. But so hypoxia is relative then to what the normal conditions are, what the species that are there can tolerate. So what's hypoxic in one part of the world might not be in another part. Oftentimes people hear like about the air quotes, big air quotes, dead zone, right? In in the central Lake Erie. Um, and so uh, how do lakes like Lake Erie get oxygen? Okay, yeah. So most of the oxygen that comes into a lake is going to come through the atmosphere. So the surface of the lake in, in contact with the atmosphere and you just get sort of oxygen coming in. You know, via diffusion, there's uh, wind might be stirring it up, uh, sort of incorporating the oxygen into the water. There's also biological processes in the lake that are creating oxygen. So you have uh, phytoplankton, you know, undergoing photosynthesis, and the byproduct of that is oxygen as well. So those are the two main ways that oxygen are getting into the water. But by far, the biggest contribution is from the atmosphere. And so then the amount of oxygen in the water, is it the, like kind of, it varies from top to bottom, right? For the most part. So in the Great, in the great Lakes, um, you know, they're, most of the Great Lakes are uh, what we call dimectic lakes. So they are stratifying twice a year. And so the easiest one to think about is, is if you have ice cover, you know, the lake is stratified. You have a colder frozen layer and then warmer water underneath it. That's a stratification. Then when that ice melts, at one point, the ice, the melting water and the warmer water are the same temperature, about four degrees. And then you have an absolute mixing of the water column. When the water column is, is fully mixed, the oxygen concentration is pretty consistent throughout the water column as well. But then you have heating, and then as the water is heating, um, there's a pretty uh, interesting phenomenon in water where water is most dense at four degrees. Uh, it's four degrees Celsius. And so... What's that, about 40 roughly? Yeah, a little lower. So that's actually like... It's a really fortunate thing because that's, you know, how we have, you know, that's why lakes can support life. If if you think about it, if lakes didn't, if water wasn't most dense at four degrees, if it was densest at when it froze, then lakes would kind of freeze from the bottom up and they would freeze solid. But because water is more dense at four degrees, you act, that's why ice floats. Oh. 
oh, wait a minute. Right, because so then the water, the colder water actually sinks. Yeah, until it gets cold enough to freeze and then it's floating on top of this. And then it floats back up. Oh, and this causes some of that mixing. This is part of the, right? Or does this sort of stir the water up kind of like a very slow blender? Um, maybe, I don't know. Sure. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, and side note, this is why this is part of the sea level rise problem too, right? Does, so water expands as it warms up. Um, it becomes less dense and expands. And this is where the, the what do they call it? Thermal something expansion, thermal expansion mm -hmm. um, huh? in the seas. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, back to the topic at hand. Okay. So the water, the water, which largely comes from phytoplankton and, and weather and wind. The and oxygen, the not the, the water. Oxygen. I'm sorry. Did I say water? Yeah, I got it. And then it mixes periodically. Yeah. And there's one little moment in time where one or two times a year where it's kind of pretty much four everywhere, right? Yep. And it's that's when it's totally mixed. Huh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then so sort of moving from like cold to warm, um, <clears throat> as the water warms, then that warming actually, as you mentioned, like the the, the warming water gets less dense. And so then you have the cold water on the bottom, you have a warm layer, and then eventually they get to the point to where that stratifies, where you have a warm surface layer, and then you'll have the sort of transition zone called the thermocline, and then below that is the hypolemnion. So that's the water that's four degrees again, but now you have warmer water sitting on top of it, and then that colder water on the bottom is then isolated from the atmosphere. There's no mixing between the warmer surface water and the lower. Right. And so that's another another time when things are uh, stratified. That's the summer stratification period. And that's a people can do a cool experiment, right? Some may have already done it where like if you put, dye hot hot water one color and cold water another, like ice water another, and then you pour them together, you can actually see that they stay completely separate from each other. So that then, so so what happens to that, that water at the bottom that now can't access the atmosphere because it's not mixing properly? What happens in there? Okay, so you have, so there's atmospheric mixing in that surface layer. So the surface layer has plenty of oxygen because you have, the atmospheric mixing, but you also have, that's where uh, the primary production is happening. That's where photosynthesis is occurring in this surface layer as well. So then you have in the bottom layer, it's cut off from, because of the density gradient, it's cut off from getting oxygen from the, from the surface. And, but you still have biological activity happening down there. You have respiration occurring. And so microbes all sorts of things are are using the oxygen in that in that bottom layer and they're depleting oxygen and so through time you can deplete if you have a small enough volume which uh, we can get into this later but lake lake erie the central basin of lake erie is like perfectly set up to have this oxygen depleted out of the bottom layer because it's shallow. Because it's very thin. It's kind of astonishingly thin. That's one of the things that, like, I've I've had to kind of change the way I think about it. Because um, you think about, um, when I think about a, a stratified water column, I think about a bowl of water, and it's cut in half. And this top half is warm. This bottom half is cold. Uh, in Lake Erie, though, um, you know, the maximum depth, of the central basin is about 
22 meters, like, you know, like 65 feet. And the surface water, the, that surface layer can go all the way down to about 20 meters. So you have this big surface layer and then a tiny little uh, bottom layer, a hypolimnion. And then that gets used up, the oxygen in that little tiny sliver gets used up really fast. Because the top layer has little, little oxygen. And that, interesting. All right, hold on. I got 10 questions. Um, all right. So how is this related to algal blooms, first of all? Uh, now that you mentioned Lake Erie um, or whatever. So so algal blooms tend to cause hypoxia or? or... They, they are, they're kind of the fuel for it um, in a lot of ways. So, you know, as I mentioned, there's still, they're, the primary biological activity down in that bottom layer is going to be like decomposition, like um, like microbes, stuff like that, breaking down the al algae that sort of falls falls down through the water. So the the algal blooms happen, and then eventually they die off, and then the algae sort of settles down to the bottom, and then that's just basically like food for the microbes down there, and then they're consuming that and consuming oxygen at the same time. Well, why can the algae bloom if there's not enough algae not use oxygen? Do I not, is this embarrassing? They correct me if I'm wrong, Dr. Collingsworth, but the algae um, are up at the surface and then they die and fall down. Oh, so they use, they use uh, 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 air, they use air, not, not oxygen. Yeah, well, they, they use the oxygen, but they're in the spot, they're in the part of the water column that has lots of oxygen, and then they die, mm -hmm. and they fall to the bottom, and then the microbes break them down. Yeah. Yep. Such is the circle of life, yes. Um, yeah, we're all headed there, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Stuart's getting ideas for next year's Halloween episode. Okay. <laughs> right. So, okay, so... There's a lot of stories about, so that's kind of cool that it's, it's actually a really, really thin layer because like I, I grew up, you know, um, on the Western part of Lake Erie and they were like, there was always stuff about the dead zone and it made it feel like it was like this thing that would just overtake everything and no fish could live there. And then I went to undergrad and, uh, Jan Siborowski, who we had on the show in our first year, um, I remember him saying one day, like, there's plenty down there that's alive. Like, and so, and you talked a little bit about like some fish can go down and some fish can come up. Are there particular fish that tend to do just fine in the dead zone of Lake Erie or the hypoxic zone of Lake Erie? Yeah. Um, so, well, I mean, they're still moving around. I mean, they're obviously going to avoid the low oxygen water. Um, but one of the examples, you know, that we talked about it at first, like yellow perch are a little more tolerant of low dissolved oxygen. And then there's actually been some research that has shown that they actually like kind of dive down into the hypoxic layer to feed. And so there could be, I don't know if it's, they're feeding on things that are dead and they're just sort of on the surface down there, or if there are other organisms like uh, coronamids, which are, you know, black fly larvae that are down on the bottom and they're actually really tolerant of hypoxia as well. And so, you know, they could be, uh, that, that could be what the perch are foraging or are feeding on down there, but there, there definitely is some evidence that, you know, perch go down and, and sort of make little, 
little trips into the hypoxic zone to feed. All right, invertebrate. Sorry, I'm going to correct you. Chironomids are midge larvae, not black oh. fly larvae. Okay. Right. <laughs> hold on, hold on, hold on. Hang on, hang on just a second, Carolyn. It's a Great Lakes factoid. A Great Lakes factoid. It's a great factoid about the Great Lakes. Cha. Take it away, Carolyn. All right. So coronamids or coronamidae are actually midge larvae. And if you see them come out and you're like, oh, my gosh, there are mosquitoes everywhere. Why aren't they biting me? And you see that they have like really fuzzy antennae. Those are midges. And there's all sorts of great air quote again um, videos of like mass emergencies. There was like a baseball game in Cleveland one time that was messed up by them. So, oh, I remember yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But... Okay. Yeah, but they are down there and they're... Joba Chamberlain. That was the picture. Joba Chamberlain. <laughs> uh, anyway. Cool. Okay, so we've talked... Uh, but the paper that you all worked on, it looked at more than just Lake Erie, correct? Right, right. So um, the referring back to the paper, like one of the things that we were looking at there was... So the there's been a lot of research in Lake Erie on hypoxia there's actually like an increasing amount of research on hypoxia in Lake Erie. Uh, but what we were trying to point out is, is that there is documentation of hypoxia in other parts of the Great Lakes. There's also uh, the, the way that I described how hypoxia happens. Um, we call that like hypolimnetic hypoxia in the paper. Uh, there are other ways that hypoxia can get set up as well. And so we were just trying to sort of um, point out these other examples that, you know, hypoxia exists in other places besides Lake Erie, although that's obviously the most like sort of famous example in the Great Lakes. It also happens in other ways um, rather than just that sort of like summer hypolimnetic hypoxia. So what about the, start with the other ways first. So you talked a little bit about winter. Is that one of them? Yeah, yeah. So so hypoxia, for hypoxia to set up, you basically need um, either like a stratification event where you have the water is sort of cut off from the atmosphere, or you just need like a lot of productivity where uh, you have like, like a lot of re where respiration is just basically like um, sort of outweighing, you know, the, the production of oxygen through photosynthesis. So overwinter is one of them. As I mentioned, you know, that's another stratified period. So obviously, if you have ice cover, you do not have connection to the atmosphere, uh, but there's still biological processes going on. It is colder. So biological processes are much slower. But if you have a really productive system, um, so one place is this, a couple places this has been documented. One is in Green Bay in Lake Michigan. One is in Saginaw Bay in Lake Huron. And those are two pretty productive embayments. There's a lot of uh, primary productivity that happens there. Uh, when you get ice cover, they're also, they also tend to get frozen over. So you get ice cover. Potentially, you get ice cover, uh, and especially if you get snow on top of the ice, because then the snow doesn't let any light through. So then you're totally shutting off photosynthesis, and all you have is respiration. And then if you have that for a long period of time, you can deplete the oxygen. And so that's been documented. Overwinter hypoxia has been documented, like I said, and, and especially in uh, Green Bay. We've also 
uh, seen a little bit of it um, with some of the work that I've done in Saginaw Bay as well. And then what are the other types of, you know, how hypoxia happens that you all found? We've got overwinter. we got your hypolimnotic. Hypolimnotic, uh, uh, overwinter. Dang it, so close. Um, there's also uh, diel hypoxia, so hypoxia that kind of just like happens at night. Uh, so that's when the little algae dies. The diel hypoxia <laughs> float to the bottom. Right? No, no. no. Right, so that's at night. Okay. Yeah. No. So if you have a, a, like a really shallow, really productive area, someplace like a coastal wetland um, where you have a lot of like algal activity, um, you can have uh, just basically like so much respiration at night that you're decreasing uh, the the oxygen in the water column. Right. So this would be... Why is, why is there so much respiration at night? Why is it at night? Well, because photosynthesis isn't happening at night. Like the dark cycle part of photosynthesis is is happening. The, the algae themselves are respiring and then everything else is. And there's no oxygen being produced at night. And so you actually have gotcha. like Sorry. dips. Okay. Uh, that's fine. You have dips in dissolved oxygen that can go... Um, and then, and then in the morning when photosynthesis comes back, then oxygen increases again. That's cool. Diel hypoxia has been shown to happen in, in some of the coastal wetlands, like around Lake Erie, um, actually, um, even in coastal wetlands, like up in, uh, Lake Superior, um, near Duluth, there's, there's been documentation of diel hypoxia. And then the last one that we did that we talked about is episodic hypoxia. Uh, and so this is something that just kind of is like an event based kind of thing. Um, so, uh, so for, and this is again, it's a, it's in systems that have a lot of uh, organic matter. Um, one place that this was documented was actually in the waterways uh, surrounding Chicago. And so if you have a big pulse of water that comes through there, say there's a storm that comes through. Chicago um, has really flashy hydrology, like flow rates can go up really high and then sort of go away. Um, but if you have um, if you have a storm that comes through and it can sort of stir up all of the organic matter on the bottom, you can actually get like a really quick sort of pulse of the the uh, microorganisms sort of working up that that dissolved or the dissolved organic material using up all the oxygen get local depletion of of oxygen in those systems so that happens another thing that we we talk about um, in the paper with within this episodic hypoxia and one of the ways that like the hypoxic zones in Lake Erie can be you know kind of um, I guess have have impacts on fish uh, fish populations is uh, when you have like the rapid movement of the hypoxic layer. So if you have, say for example, say in Central Lake Erie, there is a really strong there are really strong winds that are blowing out of the north, blowing south for for and they're sustained. They're like that for like a day or so. What you end up happening is uh, you'll have like a sesh condition sets up to where you have you're blowing all of that. The wind is blowing all the surface water down to the south end of the lake. And then you sort of get this backfilling of the bottom water that comes up along the north shore. 
Um, so it's, it's like an upwelling sort of event. And then that water that's sort of filling back up um, along the North Shore, that's coming from the bottom. And this could be like hypoxic water. And so there have been times, you know, probably within the last several years where there were fish kills that happened along the North Shore of Lake Erie in the Central Basin. And the most likely culprit of that is that you had these sort of upwellings of hypoxic water uh, coming into nearshore areas. I should, that's one of the things that we label as episodic hypoxia in the manuscript. Right. So it's kind of like a big bubble comes along and then all of a sudden the fish that are just hanging out, living their lives, um, get hit with, hey, we, we're suffocating kind of thing. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it strikes me, though, hearing about all these different types of hypoxia, it's all very weather related and seasonal, seasonally related and stuff like that. So there has to be a climate story here, right? I don't know if this is something uh, that we know about, but I mean, I think about just like lake ice. If you remember all the way back in Teach Me About the Great Lakes episode, no, oh, no, I don't remember, but where we spoke, with, I'll put a link in the show notes, where we spoke with uh, Sapna Sharma about lake ice and kind of the, the disappearing extent of it. Uh, we actually just talked about that um, a couple episodes ago, too, with the warm winters and the seasonality of wind and everything. Thing, I mean, of um, weather variability, increasing weather variability of precipitation and things like that. You know, a lot of this is going to change. Do we know what the effects of that are going to be um, when it comes to hypoxia and what have you? And actually, we haven't even talked about this. I'm sorry, I'm going to drop a double question on you. So is more hypoxia bad? Or is it like, is hypoxia bad? Or is this just what's supposed to happen? You know, I know Carolyn's a little fuzzy on the old good-bad thing. But um, yeah, I want to know, is, is hypoxia bad? And then second... If so, how screwed are we because of climate change? Uh, so we'll just go back to the to the Lake Erie example. Um, looking at uh, looking at like sediment cores and stuff like that, it looks like uh, hypoxia has always kind of happened in Central Lake Erie, um, even before you know humans were really active um, in in the basin. Um, the thing is, our activities can make it worse. And that's that's one of the issues. So um, increasing nutrients into the lake increases the uh, productivity, increases the uh, likelihood for algal blooms, including the harmful algal blooms that you hear about. I'm sure you've had some conversation about that on this podcast, um, which happened in Lake Erie. That algae is further fuel for the decomposition on the bottom. It makes the hypoxic, makes it more severe in terms of like decreasing the oxygen levels, more likely to become anoxic. Uh, it also increases like the, the amount of time that, that the hypoxic player sets up. And so, so it is not, uh, I mean, it's a relative, it's a natural phenomenon. Uh, but it is something that uh, causes problems. Uh, it causes problems with, a, um, like I, I mentioned, you know, the fish kills that can happen. Although fish are generally pretty good at getting out of the way. Um, but there are fish kills that, that do happen. Uh, one thing that a group at, at NOAA has been looking at is, as I mentioned, that, that hypoxic layer on the bottom is not just sitting there. It moves around. It sort of sloshes around. And um, depending on the conditions, the weather conditions, 
uh, you can have a situation where you can get a big sort of slug of hypoxic water that comes into the water intake crypts. So Lake Erie is a source of water for a lot of people. And when hypoxic water sort of comes into those intake cribs, it's not that like, you know, you're not going to die. There's not toxins in the water, um, but it gets a funky color and it gets a funky smell. And people don't like that, you know, when it's coming out. Um, so actually, there's a group at the NOAA Great Lakes Environment, Environmental Research Lab that have built a predictive model about the hypoxic layer, like how that hypoxic layer moves around in relation to uh, weather conditions. And so they can actually forecast where hypoxia will be in a couple of days. And they have this warning system for water quality, man, or actually water, just water, like municipal water, water intake. Yeah. yeah. Uh, where they can actually give them sort of advanced warning and then they can do, um, you know, additional treatment for the water to get rid of the funky smell and odor and, or, well, funky smell and the funky colors. And so the second question that you asked was about climate. Oh, yeah, I forgot already. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, so the expectation is that, so again, just focusing on hypolimnetic hypoxia, the expectation is that climate change would make it worse. Um, climate change will increase the period of stratification or increase the time that uh, that summer stratification occurs, which that just gives uh, more time for the sort of biological activity on the bottom to deplete the oxygen, uh, gives it just a longer time to have hypoxic conditions on the bottom. So climate change should increase the uh, the frequency and severity of hypoxia. Well, Paris, this is really interesting to hear you talking about hypoxia and, uh, you know, how it's related to algal blooms, climate, how bad it is, and all this lake stratification stuff, which I think is really a key. And also just because my revealed preference is space, like that there are differences around the Great Lakes, that there's, it's not just Lake Erie, that it happens all over the place and it happens in different ways. But now back to Stuart. <laughs> And that stuff, too. All the stuff Carolyn said as well. It, it is interesting, and it seems like it's a major physical process, um, which reminds me, we need to have you and carry on to draft physical processes in the Great Lakes, maybe next year. Anyway, uh, it's really interesting stuff, but that's actually not why we invited you here on Teach Me About the Great Lakes this week. The reason we invited you on Teach Me About the Lakes is to ask two questions, and the first one is this. If you could have a great donut for breakfast or a great sandwich for lunch, which would you have? Oh, that's easy. Uh, I definitely would be a sandwich for lunch. So you're up in the Chicago area, the EPA Great Lakes National Program. Mm -hmm. office. Okay, so one day I'm going to go visit Glempo. Maybe I'll visit you. Maybe not. We'll see. Um, I'll visit you. And and But the thing is, I'm going to get hungry, right? right. And so I'm going to be right there at Glempo, and I'm going to want to walk to get a really great sandwich. Or take the L, because you're in Chicago. Mm -hmm. I know you could take the L. Um, or I could take a new, anyway, I will trans, how, where should I get a sandwich, Parrots? That's what I'm asking you. Where should I get a sandwich? If you had to recommend a sandwich place. Okay. Yeah. Um, speaking, speaking as a Purdue employee. <laughs> walking distance from the, uh, the Glimpo offices in the Great Lakes or in the, in Chicago is a, uh, a Cuban cafe called Cafe Cito, which has a good Cuban sandwich that I would highly recommend. Done and done. Do they have Cuban coffee too? Yes, they. it's the real deal. Oh man. Yeah. Have you ever had the Cuban coffee? 
I have not, but I know. Oh man, you'll only want one, (laughs) Um, but it'll... <laughs> I uh, I spent a lot of time in Florida and we go down to Miami and get the, you know, anyway. Woo! Yeah, great. Okay, fantastic. And the second question is What is a special place in the Great Lakes that you'd like to share with our audience and what makes it special? Okay. Um, yeah, I, so my family and I, we have a kind of a janky pop up camper that we take all over the place uh, camping around the Great Lakes. Uh, one of my favorite areas is kind of the north, I guess it'd be kind of the northeastern uh, Lake Michigan. So going up basically kind of from Ludington up to Sleeping Bear Dunes, that area is is wonderful. And we I like to spend a lot of time up there if I can. Paris Collingsworth, Great Lakes Ecosystem Specialist at Illinois Indiana Sea Grant and uh, Research Assistant Professor in the Department of Forestry and Natural Resources. Thank you so much for coming on and teaching us all about the Great Lakes. Uh, thank you. stuff so what did you uh it's great to hear about hypoxia because of course i know a little bit about it but i will be honest like some of the details that paris was able to go into i I didn't know and i hadn't really thought a lot about because that's you know it's not exactly what i knew carolyn you of course know a lot about hypoxia but is there anything you learned this particular uh week anything (laughs) new that's not necessarily true i think the part that i thought I mean, it's a really cool paper. We can put it in the show notes as well. But I think um, one of the things that's kind of most interesting to me is the idea of dial, like that hypoxia can happen like on a day by day basis. And like just to think about everything that's happening in a coastal wetland, like they're just little like, I don't don't know, they produce so much and they're so important. And it's really interesting to think about that, like all this stuff is happening on such a short time scale. What about you, Stuart? No, it is. Yeah, this was a cool paper too, looking at that and sort of separating them out. Because yeah, one thing I learned, I didn't realize that, you know, hypoxia was such a diverse thing. Um, you know, they, they use a uh, spectrum like people do, but really it's probably more of a gradient in terms of oxygen type conditions and how different species are adapted to different things. And so what's hypoxic for, you know, uh, one might not be hypoxic for another. I mean, coronamids, for example, just classic uh, can exist in many different conditions. But but I think it's also a value of, um, you know, we didn't get into it. I meant to ask Paris about this, but a value of these types of papers, right? Uh, review papers is they can be really time consuming to write. And uh, it's not necessarily doing new research. And so sometimes it's hard to take the time to do it. But when somebody does it and ident- identifies research gaps and sort of classifies everything, it's, it's really, really valuable. Teach Me About the Great Lakes is brought to you by the fine people at Illinois Indiana Sea Grant. We encourage you to check out the great work we do at iicgrant.org and at ilincgrant.org on Facebook, Twitter, and other social media. If you haven't figured this out yet, there are Easter eggs after these credits. Teach Me About the Great Lakes is produced by Hope Charters, Carolyn Foley, Megan Gunn, and Rini Miles. Ethan Chitty is our associate producer and fixer. Our super fun podcast artwork is by Joel Davenport. The show is edited by the awesome Quinn Rose, and we thank her for everything. Thank you, Quinn. 
If you have a question or comment about the show, or you want to share gross pictures of blooms and stuff like that, please email it. Or stories. We'll take gross stories. Gross stories. Uh, you know. Yeah. All right. Please Text email it slash them to teach me about the Great Lakes at gmail.com or leave a message on our hotline at 765-496-IISG. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Teach Great Lakes. Like the fish populations on the north shore of Lake Erie, it's pretty dead right now. Only during when the bubble comes up, Stuart. Only during... Anyway. Thanks for listening and keep reading those lakes. All right, and now I'm going to tell a story. And Quinn, I want you to put this at the end because it's not relevant. I apologize, Paris. But forgetting to remember is like a thing for me. I have to remember to not forget to remember. Uh, so when I was younger, I used to really like commercials, uh, you know, television commercials. My dad would always say, you pay more attention to the commercials than you do to the, uh, to the TV show. And that, that's probably not true, but maybe it is. Oh, uh, but one, one thing I really like to do with commercials is like, look to see how they're doing marketing, like how they're trying to scam you and sell you stuff. And like what all the, you know, like, like when I used to listen to sports talk radio, one time they talked about a medically supervised anecdotal study, which is my favorite phrase ever, because it means absolutely nothing. Right. And, and so it, it uh, but, but one time, uh, uh, Remington, Remington razor blades, who I'm not recommending or, or not recommending, uh, uh, they con you know, I got a call from like a company. Hey, we want you to review this ad. Uh, this was back in the early 2000s. And so they sent me a videotape. It was a one-use videotape. And they're like, all right, put this in, but don't watch the videotape until we call you. And so, all right, I put the videotape in the VCR and they called me up and they're like, well, you know, this is like a consumer study. I was so excited to get to like rate a commercial. This was a highlight of my life. Um, but the thing is, I pay more attention to the commercials. That is true than I do to the other stuff. But, <laughs> but the... The thing is, also, most of the time during the commercials, you mute the TV and, like, go to the bathroom or whatever, right? So I hit play while the lady's on the phone, and, like, I zoned out. I completely forgot <laughs> to pay attention. <laughs> and so after 30 seconds, she's like, so what did you think about the – and I was like, oh, oh, like, I vaguely remember there was some baby. And I was like, you know, you don't want to hurt the baby. <laughs> so I, I think I found it. I'll, I'll, I'll link to it in the show um but yeah because it was like a guy with a nice fresh remington or norelco or whatever shave and like he held a baby up to his very clean chin but i had no idea what had happened in the commercial and of course the tape was totally destroyed so what should have been the shining moment in my life uh, was instead i forgot to remember to pay attention so um anyway right. that is why i will always be a great lakes novice